Welcome to the Eric Jackson Podcast. I am Eric, Eric Jackson, joined today by Ben Fritz. Ben is a reporter with the Wall Street Journal, covers the film uh, business, media business, um, including a bunch of companies that we're going to be discussing today. Uh, and Ben has been on a podcast blitz uh, over the <laughs> last few, few weeks uh, because he's also the uh, new author of um, a really interesting book um, about uh, the whole evolution of the of Hollywood and what's happening today and the total flux that the industry is in the name of the book is called the big picture, the fight for the future of movies. It's now available on Amazon. Uh, ben, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, Eric. So I'm, I've, uh, I've listened, I think to most of the, the podcasts uh, that you've done as part of the, the sort of the book tour. Wow. Um, and what I was interested in, uh, was sort of drilling in on some of the specific companies and the challenges that they're facing um, because uh, I'm sort of, a, I'm, I'm a media investor. And so selfishly, you know, I'm, I'm interested in these companies and what they're specifically doing and so forth. But I thought before we, we dive into that and this, you know, the Sony's of the world and so forth, um, you could just provide a, just, an, just an overview of, of the big picture, what it's about. It's kind of the, the key uh, things that you uh, surprised you as as you sort of uh, worked on the project to sure. To bring so it to life. The, the book, um, you know, thematically is about sort of the transformation of Hollywood of the movie business in the past decade and how did we go from uh, it being a business that produced a diversity of films, including star star vehicles, romantic comedies, dramas for adults, kind of all types of movies for all types of people, to one that's really focused almost exclusively on franchises, superhero movies, sequels, reboots, branded films. And uh, other types of films, especially you know, again, original dramas for adults, have become an, an endangered species. Um, how, did, how and why did that transformation happen? And I talk about the economic forces behind it, but you know, I try to give it give it life, sort of put a story behind it. And the way I do that is uh, uh, in large part through using uh, the hack of Sony Pictures from a few years ago. And I, I read all those emails and documents that came out of it, tens of thousands of them. And supplement that with a few dozen interviews I did to kind of tell a story. If you start with uh, kind of all the themes that my book hits on, uh, you know, I start with uh, Sony sort of a, a character, so to speak, and the executives who were running that studio during the time of the hack, 2012 to 14, let's say, which is right really in the midst of all these changes happening to Hollywood. And you see how they were struggling with those changes. And uh, then we, you know, kind of move and see the other companies that were uh, dealing with them at the same time, like Marvel, for example, Disney. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, uh, uh, throughout it hits on all the, you know, the big points of how the movie business has changed from the rise of superheroes to the decline of stars to the uh, competition for attention between film and TV and uh, the influence of China and new streaming players like Amazon and Netflix. So let's talk about Sony Pictures, um, because uh, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm always intrigued by Sony. It's it's a unique studio in the sense that you've got this you, you've had since since the, the first deal for Columbia mm -hmm. happened this mixture of uh, American culture 
you know, the indie film executives who run the studio and they're the overlords that, uh, from Japan and how those cultures have, have, um, worked or not worked over the years. I mean, what, what's, uh, what is the, how, how well do, uh, these two cultures get along? I mean, today? I think they get along reasonably well, but they, they've sort of all finally had to admit after, you know, what's it been now, uh, 25 plus years of trying that like this, this, the presumed synergies behind the, behind Sony's acquisition of Columbia pictures have failed. Um, the reasons why they bought, uh, the, the movie and TV studio with sort of the, the ideal synergy of hardware and, and software, let's call it content, never materialized. There's very little uh, re- relevance between the movies and TV shows that Sony produces and the, the uh, I, iPhone chips and uh, video games and other things that um, Sony Pictures makes. And um, as, 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 much as, they've, as much as they've tried to connect uh, those businesses, they, they haven't really. And so, um, uh, you know, they're, they get along well, but on the other hand, like they, they have very little to do with each other, which is sort of a weird sense of frustration, I think for, for everyone. Um, uh, but, uh, at least on the plus side, like, like nobody's trying to push for synergies that don't exist anymore. And I think that, uh, um, the, the parent company in Tokyo realizes that, uh, you know, the best thing they, the best thing they can do right now is try to try to support their Hollywood studio without, uh, getting in the way too much, um, Still, still, this question hanging over them in the long run: like, are they going to eventually sell them or do some deal? Because everybody knows uh, there's sort of no reason for this to um, exist, and it's probably unlikely to. Uh, they're probably unlikely to stay together in the long run. So, doesn't Sony still hang on to this idea of the the hardware software vision? Um, you know that there there seems to be continued interest in. Uh, mining their their video game IP, for example, for uh, as for for content for future for future movies, um, isn't that vision still intact? I mean, they still talk about it to investors, but if you talk to the people who work there in practice, there's there's very little of it. I mean, yes, they are developing a movie based on the Uncharted video game, which a Sony game, but they've been developing that for you know, five seven years or something. Um, you know, we'll see if it actually happens, but if it does, you know, adapting one video game hardly uh, justifies, you know, multi-billion dollar deal they did 25 years ago. You know, I mean, the, if, if there were going to be synergies, you would have seen, you know, Sony use its studio to make Blu-ray a great success, or you would have seen them build a Netflix killer on PlayStation that using content from Sony pictures, something like that. They've never been able to do any of that. So, uh, they try to come up with ways to say, Hey, this is one Sony and talk about how they work together. But in practice, there is very little of it. And if you talk to the executives who work at Sony pictures past or present, they, they will admit that they, uh, they have very little to do with the rest of uh, Sony corporation. One of the most interesting stories from your book was around the uh, opportunity that Sony had, uh, uh, when Marvel was sort of come, I believe it was when Marvel was coming out of bankruptcy to, to basically buy the entire um, catalog from Marvel uh, for $25 million, I believe. And uh, how that, you know, the word came back down from on high that that was a stupid waste of money and people yeah. cared about Spider-Man. Was, yes. uh, but was that, was that, did that come, did that order come from Japan, from Tokyo? Was, was that an example? No. Uh, or was no, that because a, a U.S. decision? No. That was a U.S. decision. There definitely were times I think that people in the U.S. wanted to make investments or acquisitions, and 
a challenge was that Tokyo was not willing to give them the capital to do it. Um, but this was, as you say, this was a time uh, Sony found, Sony was trying to consolidate the rights to Spider-Man. They had some, but not all. And Marvel, just out of bankruptcy, desperate for cash, offered the Sony lawyer, uh, Sony Pictures lawyer, the movie rights to virtually all their characters for just $25 million, which, you know, in hindsight is, you know, steel of the century. But uh, the Sony Pictures executives, you know, who ran the studio then, um, which was led by John Kelly, they... They couldn't see any value in any characters besides Spider-Man. Spider-Man was the only Marvel comic book character with any kind of awareness beyond the comic book geek crowd. And they thought, who would ever possibly want to see a movie about Black Panther or Captain America or the Guardians of the Galaxy? Those seemed like worthless characters. So they said, no way, we don't even want to spend $25 million on them. And they told the lawyer, just go back and get Spider-Man. All anybody cares about is Spider-Man. And what what is the deal now that they do have with Spider-Man? Is it basically forever and always they, they have the rights to produce these movies? They essentially do. They have to make a new movie. I believe it's it's in the book. I believe it's every five years and nine months or something. They have to have a new film, um, you know, which is a very easy schedule. They've they've never had a problem uh, meeting that. So in 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 practice, they have the they have the movie rights to Spider Man in perpetuity as long as they uh, keep making a film, uh, you know, every again approximately six years, which I'm sure they will keep doing because those rights are so valuable. They'd pro they'd, they'd be crazy to let them lapse. So uh, they, um, Sony, you talk in the book how they really made a bet, especially in the 2000s on stars, especially um, Adam Sandler, um, Will Smith. And, and now, and, and like you were saying at the beginning, now one of the, one of the um, conclusions of, of your book is that uh, the, the power of stars is diminished and we've instead uh, evolved to uh, the power of franchises. And so, so those those Sony stars uh, specifically, they, it seems like they've those two have migrated to Netflix now uh, as, as sort of their home. Um, and um, you, would you anticipate that um, the same would be true? I, I, I was trying to think of any other kind of present day stars, you know, that uh, you know defy defy that uh, your your thesis. And I could really only think of The Rock and maybe Kevin Hart. Um, are they more exceptions though? Do you think? Yes, I think they're, I mean, you know, Dwayne Johnson, the rock is really sort of the one remaining global movie star. Um, I think somebody who can get people to come to, uh, big movies built around him, even if they're not based on a comic book or, uh, you know, previous movie, a piece of IP. Um, you know, even, you know, Kevin Hart, uh, has had a number of successes, but he certainly, uh, hasn't had any, you know, movies that gross 500 million, a billion dollars worldwide, like, like, uh, Dwayne Johnson has. Um, so he still has a, you know, he has his audience, but it's a, it's a very targeted audience. Let's say, um, you, you can imagine Kevin Hart being drawn to do something on Netflix sometime soon. Dwayne Johnson is still sort of like a big screen movie star. Um, so there's very, very few people, you can name very, very few people who haven't done, who aren't doing a lot, let's say for Netflix and or HBO and or FX, you know, et cetera. Um, almost everyone's doing movies for those platforms and or TV shows. Um, you know, even Dwayne Johnson does have a show on, on HBO, in fact, but he's still primarily doing these movies for the traditional studios. But everyone else, I mean, especially if they want to spread their wings, if they want to be able to m make a movie that they want to make, um, a mid-budget film, something original, not not based, again, on, a, on an existing franchise, um, uh, you know, that's the kind of bet Netflix is willing to make and the kind of bet that the traditional studios really aren't anymore. So they're pretty much all going there. 
So the, the two heads of Sony at the time, you know, that you really focused on the book with the hack were Amy Pascal and, and Mike Linton. Pascal kind of took the fall uh, at that time and departed. Now she's sort of moved into uh, producing movies herself. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you about Mike Linton. How did you read his departure from the company? Was it, was he really pushed out from above? Was, was he seen as too tied to this, this way of the past in terms of this star driven approach? Well, I, I don't think they blamed him specifically for like, say the star driven approach. Um, you know, Amy ran the, the movie business day to day. And, um, you know, Michael replaced her uh, a couple of years before he left. He replaced her in 2014 with Tom Rothman, who certainly was changing the strategy and trying to get them to both be more cost efficient and more franchise focused and more international focused. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, there, there was no right around the time Michael left, the studio took a billion dollar write down. I mean, there was sort of no escaping the fact that its financial performance under Michael was not very good and had been declining for a number of years. And it's in part due to the movie business problems we've been talking about. It's in part due to their television business, which television production business, especially, which grew for quite a while. But because it didn't have its own network or major streaming service, um, was very kind of became very limited in what they could do. Um, and, uh, you know, they didn't manage their costs well and they, you know, they, they had a lot of problems. And, and, and Michael, um, you know, I, I, it became clear, you know, in part through the hack that he was not very focused on the business he was running, that he was trying to get out and do something else, like get into academia, for example. And, you know, the final the final straw was also that Michael um, was an early investor in and then became chairman of Snapchat, um, which is a technology company that, uh, you know, to a certain extent competes with Sony, um, and uh, but also, you know, took, you know, took more and more of his attention. So I think it was if they clearly Sony Pictures needed a turnaround, needed a change in strategy. And I think, you know, nobody could argue anymore that Michael Linton was the right guy to do that. Mm-hmm. So his successor was Tony Vincicara. Um What's changed under Tony? Um, well, un- under Tony, they've they've I mean, it seems like there's a much more of lack of a better term, a sense of realism about who they are and where, what, what, how they fit into the current environment. I mean, Tony's been kind of very explicit that he, that Sony's going to have to do deals, right? That Sony Pictures, the size it is, cannot be competing with the Netflixes, the NBC Universals, the AT&T Time Warners, uh, the Disney Foxes of the world. So they're either going to have to make acquisitions themselves or get acquired. And uh, I think they're focused, they're focusing on execution. Like, you know, if Sony Pictures executes better, it'll be a more valuable company in which they can that they'd be in a better position, you know, to either get bought at a premium or to buy other companies um, uh, with with uh, their equity or increased cash, let's say. So um, he's working, you know, working with Tom to, to, you know, improve the movie business. And he's very focused on that. And, you know, Tony's background, though, especially in television, and he's trying to um, sort out their TV business. Um, and uh, at, at a time when, again, they're... Um, it's it's you know it's a great time to be producing TV shows, but it's not a great time to not own your own digital or cable platform. And so he's he's very he's very focused on uh, making Sony valuable to I think all the streaming players out there and making it a partner and not letting it kind of fall by the wayside as they increasingly produce their own shows. So Tony and Tony's just Tony's really he's a media guy, unlike Michael. He's 100% focused. This is what he wants to do, and. Uh, He's just focused on building value and then doing deals, which is not something Michael was really involved in. He wasn't really a deal maker. Okay. 
And so is is Sony going? Do you think Sony is going to be an acquirer or in in a couple you know over the next couple of years, or are they more likely to be consolidated? You know, they they they'd like to be. They'd like to be right. Yeah, they they'd like to be. Nobody nobody goes out there and says we're looking to be acquired. Um, no, nobody sane does that. That's not a real way to run your business because it's hardly a way to motivate your employees. Hardly a way to get a premium for yourself. And if happens if a deal does if a deal doesn't happen, then then you're left in the lurch. Um, so I think Sony will you know will try to make acquisitions. I mean, he, so Tony's a very smart guy, so he's running the business you know, in a way that's like assuming they won't be bought. And if they're not going to be bought, they've got to buy other things. They've got to, they've got to grow in size. They've got to get their own distribution platform. Um, they, they need that. And that's where you'll see, you can see them focused on, but there's no, I think there's no question that um, they would probably love it if somebody came to them and offered a real premium price for Sony pictures. I mean, that's, that's probably, that's that it's hard to imagine another end game that lets them really compete with, Netflix or Apple or Comcast, NBC Universal. And so Jumanji is probably, you know, one of the best things that could happen to Tony or Sony in the sense that it's sort of uh, relaunching a new franchise based on Sony owned IP. Yes. So this is a huge success for them. I mean, uh, just financially in and of itself, right? This is a movie that costs a little over a hundred million dollars and it's grossed close to a billion dollars. And uh, um, unlike Spider-Man, even, you know, Sony 100% owns uh, the rights to Jumanji. They're not renting them from someone else. They, they, they have, I mean, it was based on a book, but they, they own those movie rights and a lot of any related merchandise rights if they exploit them forever. So uh, it's great, you know, it's not a new franchise as a 20-year-old movie, but in the sense that it's been revitalized for the 21st century, it's a big deal. It's both a lot of profits in the short run and reason to think there's more profits to come in a movie business that desperately needs franchises for them. So it kind of build actually seems to build value in the company, something, another, something that a potential acquirer might want, you can imagine. So in that sense, it's really, really So when you look at the other big studios, um, who, do, who do you assess as the, the strongest of the traditional Hollywood studios? Well, look, there's no question Disney is not only the strongest, it's like in a whole other stratosphere than the rest of the movie studios. Their, their profits are consistently and significantly higher than those of the other studios in Hollywood. And they own more franchises than anybody else. And the strategy they pursued is the one everybody else is trying to emulate to the best of their ability. Um, Disney has the best franchises are focused almost entirely on exploiting them. And they're consistently successful with them. Star Wars, Pixar, Marvel, you know, the Disney live action remakes of their animated movies like Jungle Book and Beauty and the Beast. Um, uh, there's, you know, there's just no question about it. And now they're in the forefront among the studios and moving into the streaming age and launching a, an S-Bot service to compete with Netflix. Um, you know, the, the other strongest one, without a doubt, is Universal, um, since Comcast bought them and is really invested in, you know, they, they have a, they have some very strong franchises like Fast and Furious and uh, Jurassic World and their and their animation like Despicable Me. Um, and they've, they've, they've been very smart in building those, exploiting them. And a lot of them have synergies with the Comcast theme parks and the Comcast consumer products business, um, which again, puts them, if not quite on the same level as Disney, certainly playing the same game. And, you know, they already have the pipes, which Disney doesn't have. So, um, they, uh, have sort of a good, you know, they, you can see them being well positioned in the future to compete against the, the, the digital players. Um, and then a strength they have that even Disney doesn't is they've built a very strong low budget horror business, you know, with Blumhouse, who they have a long term deal with. So 
You know, they produce Get Out, they produce The Purge, they produce Split. And those movies are um, very profitable for them. And, you know, it's, it's sort of a brand that they are very well connected with. You know, Blumhouse is a great horror brand. And that's, so that's a real strength they have. Um, you have you have Warner Brothers, which is uh, I sort of put in the middle there. They've you know they've traditionally been the biggest studio. They produce the most movies. They they do have a strong set of franchises, um, like Harry Potter, Fantastic Beasts, Lego, DC. Uh, they haven't executed as well as they should. I think they would admit that, but they do they do have the resources and they do theoretically have the, the good IP. They just need to execute better, and they will if if the you know if they win in court be merged with a major distributor in AT&T. So they're in a pretty good place. Um, you know, then going to the other studios quickly, I mean, Fox, Fox, I would have said, it's a lot of questions around, but now Fox probably is not going to be an independent studio for more than another year. So it's just a question of how they fit into Disney and how much of them survives. Um, you know, obviously, obviously Disney's going to, you know, the few big franchises Fox has, Avatar, the X-Men are going to be absorbed into Disney. And then, the rest of it is going to be some kind of a little subsidiary of Disney. You know, maybe they'll keep producing Searchlight films to a limited extent and Fox 2000, ad, you know, book adaptations. But those are going to be primarily, I think, for Disney streaming platforms like Hulu that they'll take control of. And we can certainly talk right. about more. So, so Fox, you see those conti- you see those continuing, not being Miramax. I see those not com- being completely shut down, but I see them the, the financial value of them to Disney is really for streaming. I don't, you know, Disney, I think Bob Iger learned the hard way and he knows that there's not a lot of money for those types of films in the traditional model of theatrical releases followed three months later by DVD and then eventually they go into streaming. That's not where the value is for like specialty films. The value for them is to attract, you know, a certain targeted affluent audience to subscribe to to digital. So you can see those kind of films having limited theatrical releases and moving very quickly to digital or in some cases being released directly to digital. Um, that's that that is without a doubt the value of those mid to low budget films that Fox has had some success with, and then the others are Paramount and Sony, which are obviously the 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 the, the weakest by far in Hollywood right now. So with um, so it would seem like from your ranking, Paramount and Sony are the weakest of the major studios. So do you anticipate over the next five years they're going to get taken out? I mean, I think it's very likely deals happen for both Sony Pictures and Viacom. The, the only thing holding them back, actually, um, is that they've executed so poorly for the past few years that they're they're not valuable enough. You know, it's like they 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 kind of want to. You can see this in CBS's bid for Viacom. Viacom wants it to be increased, right? And CBS doesn't think they're worth it. Um, if they execute better for the next few years, you can see them getting a getting a higher price when somebody buys them. That's kind of what they're focused on right now. They kind of can't afford to sell themselves at the moment, you know, um, because they've done so poorly. So I don't think a deal is imminent for either one, um, but I do think eventually, yeah, those those companies, uh, you know, they've executed poorly. The parent companies haven't invested in them, and they just don't have the scale to compete. Uh, again, against the Netflixes, Disney Foxes, et cetera, of the world. So it seems pretty inevitable that uh, they consolidate one way or another. So back to Disney, uh, you do like the Disney Fox merger or whatever. I see the logic of it. I, I certainly, I, I see, I see the strategy of it. I don't, you know, I don't see the strategy of every piece of Fox that they're buying, but I think, you know, fun, fundamentally, right, it gets them two things. It gets them, after years and years of cutting back on the content it produces, Disney actually realizes that, you know, to get into streaming, it needs more content. They're not going to produce as much content as, you know, as Netflix does. And Netflix has 700 pieces of original content this year. But Disney needs more than they've been having, especially on the film front, where they're down to 10 or 12 films per year. They, they know they need more. 
and also uh, you know they they want to actually um, expand their brand a little bit beyond just the family stuff they've been so successful with and uh, the Fox brands like FX let, let, and Searchlight let them do it and also having Hulu which they'll take control of assuming that they they, they, they keep it through, through the deal um, will give them a streaming platform that, that they tend they intend to target more at more at adults um, on Hulu um, is it is do you have an opinion about the fact that when you have a relationship with Netflix, it's basically sort of one-stop shopping. You have sort of a, the, uh, you can hive off the part that's for your kids. You have the mature stuff. You have, you know, increasingly like talk stuff um, all in one spot. Um, and the way that Disney seems to be going about it initially anyway, is you've got, um, uh, it's more like a cable model in, in terms of many subscriptions to different services, ESPN plus you're going to have whatever the Disney entertainment OTT service is going to be. And then Hulu, is there, is there a logic to having three separate bill, three separate billing relationships or potentially some bundle that Disney offers versus an uh, all you can eat approach? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's critical for Disney to do that because the Disney brand is really valuable, right? They they have, they'd be crazy not to use it. But on the other hand, the Disney brand means something and it doesn't mean mature content. So they can't have mature content in a service brand to Disney. But then the other hand, they, they be crazy not to use Disney as a brand for a family service. So therefore, if they want to have mature content, they've got to have another brand. And, you know, so Hulu makes a lot of sense. You know, ESPN is also a very strong brand in sports, but it's very different than the family entertainment Disney makes. So because Disney has been such a brand focused company and they've had distinct brands, right? Disney has been all about ESPN's a brand, Disney's a brand, Marvel's a brand, Lucasfilm's a brand, um, Star Wars, let's say. They can only separate, you know, uh, they can only separate those out. I'm sorry, they can only put them together so much. And to a certain extent, those brands have always lived separately in consumers' minds. And they, so they, they're going to have to carry that strategy over to digital. Um, you know, uh, I think that's, that's going to be very, that's going to be very helpful to them in marketing. People know exactly what they get when they subscribe to ESPN or to Disney in the SVOD world. Um, you know, is it going to be annoying to people to have to subscribe to multiple services as opposed to with Netflix, you get everything all in one. Uh, you know, that's just going to be a question of whether Disney prices them well and whether or not, you know, it's easy for consumers to, 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 to navigate between them. You know, there are, there are strengths and weaknesses that when you turn on Netflix, um, you know, you go to the kids section or you go to the adult section and there's so much content to navigate through. Um, you know, there's advantages and disadvantages to that. I think it's all just going to be a matter of pricing and product design for whether or not Disney's approach uh, works. One of the fascinating things about Disney is and Fox coming together, um, on, at least for Disney Studios, is uh, the incoming number of Fox people that are going to presumably join the company. So you have Alan Horn today running the, the Disney studio. Uh, he's older, there's not a clear line of succession there for him. Uh, incoming, potentially you have John Landgraf, Stacey Snyder, Dana Walden, Peter Rice, um, and of course, uh, James Murdoch. Um, so I, I'm curious if you hear anything about um, which of those people you think are you know, more, more likely to, to join Disney, to move up in Disney. Uh, yeah, like I think I think the let's say the conventional wisdom in Hollywood is that the the, the TV people, um, like Dana Walden, um, and her team have a have a pretty good chance of taking over, or having top positions in the combined television business once the deal is complete. They're uh, a little bit bigger than Disney's 
non-ESPN TV business and they've um, been more successful, more and more broadly successful with a bunch of different um, types of channels. Um, so I think a lot of people think uh, they're going to have a future helping to run Disney's TV business. Let's say also Peter Rice, of course, who's you know the top TV executive at Fox. I think you, there's a good chance they'll have top positions at Disney in television um, in, and uh, television production and running the, the, the cable and broadcast networks in, just in, in some way. Um, uh, on film, you know, who replaces Alan Horn running the studio? It's unclear, St but Stacey Snyder's creative sensibility doesn't seem like an obvious match to the, to the family sensibility that Disney has. That's not really been her background. So uh, a lot of people think it's unlikely that she's his successor, um, although it's not, it's, not, it's not impossible. But certainly, you know, on the film studio side, you can expect a lot of the leadership probably to go. If Disney's been so successful at film, and again, they're going to be cutting back significantly on that front. Uh, James Murdoch, I don't, look, nobody knows for sure, but I, uh, he, you know, he's such a senior position at 21st Century Fox, and nobody at Disney seems eager for him to have a similarly powerful position at Disney. So I, I it's hard to see how he would fit. And in terms of the, um, the franchise um, model that Iger, you know, has really now pioneered um, and modeled for the rest of Hollywood, with the Pixar, Marvel, Lucasfilm acquisitions. Are there any other deals like that out there to be done? Uh, are there any other potential franchises like Lego, for example? Um, or has all the good stuff been, been taken? And that's why you see people increasingly like trying to create their own line of super, you know, uh, action, action characters and so forth. Right, boy, it sure doesn't seem like there's anything obvious out there to be acquired um, and you see people stretching and you know buying very small comic book companies now um, so I, I, I'm not aware of anything on the scale of let's say a Marvel or a Lucasfilm that's sitting out there that's independent the only the only the notable exception I would say of the rights the somewhat complicated rights to James Bond which are not owned by any major studio and plenty of them would like to get their hands on of course um, that's the only one I could think of that's like a a company that's primarily an IP company. You mentioned Lego, but you know Lego is primarily a toy manufacturer. I'm not saying no. I'm saying they couldn't get bought. They could, but they, you know they're a very expensive company to buy. You know be, beyond uh, their beyond their IP. So there is uh, there's there's not a lot out there. So another another theme in in your book was um, basically uh, Hollywood now needing to think about how a film is going to open in China or Russia, you know, at almost as much as, um, you know, in Peoria or whatever. Uh, and so I, I was curious also if, if you, you know, there, there have been uh, uh, the Chinese players that have really started to finance films a lot over the last five, five years or so, Tencent, Alibaba. Um, what, what's your expectation? Wanda, I guess was was popular there for a while and now seems to have kind of sh shrinked back. Um, but what's your expectation about potentially foreign players or foreign money, um, whether it's from China, Europe, Russia, uh, and how, how they might play a stronger um, role in, in producing films over these next five ten, to 10 years? Well, there's two ways they can do it, right? One is to produce films themselves in their home country and then export them around the world. And the other is to make investments in Hollywood. Um, we've seen China try both. 
with mixed success. Like they, well, they've had no success in the first approach, which is making movies themselves that then can play outside of China. And the big efforts like The Great Wall have been failures. And a lot of, you know, China's been gotten much better at making movies that succeed in China. So the top of the box office there is more often movies made domestically rather than Hollywood imports. But those movies like Wolf Warrior 2, for example, which was a massive hit there last year, don't do much business outside of China. They're just not culturally appealing or in the rest of the world. They don't translate well the way Hollywood movies do around the world. Um, uh, and really, there's, you know, there's nobody else in any other country who succeeded at that. China, China was a big you know, investor in Hollywood for a while there they, until late last year when because of you know, political issues, currency controls that got cut back significantly. But I still think that's a strategy they they like and want to pursue um, is uh, partnering with Hollywood companies. I think they sort of see that as a better way to make content that you know they have a stake in that has Chinese influences, but that can appeal globally. Um, so if and when you know currency controls uh, are loosened and you know political dynamics change a bit, you, I wouldn't be surprised to see that revive. Um, but you know the the strategy, at least for a while, where they were investing in new companies back by Hollywood studio executives like Adam Goodman and Jeff Robinov are a bit on hold. And, uh, you know, they have, they've made some investments where they co-finance movies with companies like Universal and Lionsgate. Um, again, there haven't been any new ones recently, but I wouldn't be surprised if uh, those come back at some point because, you know, China has a lot of money. They want to be a powerful player in entertainment. And it's very hard to do that without working with Hollywood. You know, they, they, they've learned the hard way, at least if you want to be a global player, not just a local player. Right. So you would anticipate uh, Tencent and Alibaba are sort of here to stay. Yes. In that's all, yes. I mean, as I, I can't, you know, I, uh, I don't know the details of those companies. So, you know, I don't know if they'll have Wanda style problems, but assuming they don't. Uh, yes, I think they absolutely uh, are here to play. These are, you know, think of in the same way that, you know, Amazon and Apple and you know, Amazon and Apple are major tech companies here that are getting into entertainment. And I don't see them disappearing. I see them plugging away at it until they figure it out, you know, Tencent, Alibaba are the massive tech players of China and having content as a part of that strategy is critical. And again, working with Hollywood is critical if you want to be a global content player. I mean, you, you mentioned the Great Wall and obviously that was sort of a miss and didn't really translate from China to here. Um, but I, I, do you think, does Hollywood really know what, what plays well in China or, you know, or Russia and, or how it's different than, than here? I mean, there's been sort of like throw, throw action movies over there, you know, lots of transformers, but you know, I, I don't know that that's always been a recipe for success over there. Is, are, are, are we still figuring it out? What exports the best, um, you know, just like they're trying to figure that out, you know, in the opposite direction. Well, look, we don't, it's not always a slam dunk. There's certainly movies that Hollywood studios think will do well in China or Russia that, that don't. Um, so, but Overall, you know, it's, it's very clear there are, you know, big Hollywood franchises like Fast and Furious, let's say, that are just massively successful around the world. And those types of movies, the Marvel movies, too, those types of movies generally work pretty well. So I, I don't I think Hollywood's level, Hollywood's ability to predict what global audience will, will want is not that far off from its ability to predict what Americans will want these days. You know, these big the big branded event movies are pretty consistently successful. Um around the world and in, in, in every market, people, moviegoers around the world, they love, they love action. They love big visual effects and they love, um, they love brand. They like globally popular brands, you know, point I make in the book, the same way they like Apple, the same way they like Louis Vuitton. They also like Marvel and they like Transformers and Fast and Furious.
Uh, and one of the interesting stories of the last couple of weeks has been the, the big Roseanne ratings in TV. And um, so this is a little different than, than your book, but it, it, you know, when I saw the success that, that, you know, those ratings drew for Roseanne, it did remind me of your, your book and, and this theme. It, it's almost like the revival of the franchises applied to, to television. Yeah, well, absolutely. I think, you know, familiar brands break through in a very crowded media environment. Without a doubt, people can say they want originality, but when you've got all these new things coming at you all the time, something that you're familiar with, that you've heard of, that you've had a sense of what you're going to get, appeals to people, you know, and Roseanne is sort of that perfect uh, um, example, kind of like Jumanji in a weird way, where it's, okay, it's a brand you know, you sort of know what you're going to get, but then you don't want the exact same thing you had. You know, it's a very you want to mix nostalgia with like some sort of smart updates for the 21st century. And Roseanne, you know, in its political relevance, talking about the Trump era and you know what what are the issues families face now, I think did that very well. So it kind of reminds us of the show we saw back in the 90s, but it has it's been freshened up in some ways, but not been radically changed. And uh, that's that's been it's easier said than done, but that's been a formula for success and 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 in, in, on both in movie theaters and we're seeing increasingly on, on TV. And so just in the last couple of weeks, in terms of your day job with the wall street journal, um, have you heard from Hollywood insiders, you know, a lot more talk about reboots of, I don't know, BJ and the bear night rider, <laughs> you know, you know, silver spoons or whatever. Yeah. Like uh, honestly, since, since, since the, since the fall, honestly, since it started with will and grace, um, which was this, the revival has been very successful. There's absolutely, they've absolutely been looking for that. I mean, the, the traditional broadcast networks are desperate for any advantage they have over Netflix and HBO and FX these days. And one thing they have is, uh, you know, classic shows that people love because those other channels weren't around 25 years ago. Right. So that's why, you know, there's some new Murphy Brown coming just for example. And, you know, Star Trek is back on, on CBS streaming service and, uh, they're absolutely going to mine that for all their well, all it's worth because they have not been very successful at producing hit you know new hit shows right. There's very you know few new hit shows that have been produced by broadcast networks in the past few years. There's often just one or two per year, whereas you know it used to be ten or twenty every year. And last question, Ben. Um, I, I thought another great um, little nugget from from your book was this uh, was uh, one of the Sony Pictures. Uh, executives talking about the, the Will Smith, Adam Sandler, uh, you know, heyday t 10 years ago or whenever. And, uh, that person had a line, like, you know, they, they're, they're responsible for buying all our houses. Um, and you know, so I'm just curious about like, can you co compare the tone of Hollywood executives today to say that time? Like it strikes me as like that world, you know, must have, you know, it seems so placid, it seems so, yeah. you know, ma mail it in compared to what's going on today. How, how would you characterize sort of the, 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 um, the, the sense of fear or dread or excitement among executives today? In Hollywood? Yeah, I think that the sense of fear and real uncertainty about what's coming is very high, higher than maybe any time I've seen it in covering the business. I think studio executives kind of don't feel like they don't know what's coming They're They're being racked by huge changes in the business model, right? As, as, as the digital companies move in and people increasingly uh, don't go to the theater for movies that they used to easily go for. So it's hard to know what works. It's hard. And if you're not Disney, it's hard to know how to compete with them. So the bit, the business is very difficult. 
and and there's all this consolidation happening. People at you know Fox don't know what's going to happen next year. People at Warner Brothers don't know what's going to happen next year. And then there's all these cultural changes happening as a result of the Me Too movement. Um, so it's it's a you know business and culture are rapidly changing, and uh, so people who people who ran movie studios or have been top executives for you know decades and sort of you know things changed in the 90s and 2000s but slowly and they sort of pretty much knew what they were doing and they knew hey if you work with certain movie stars or you have a you know, good diverse slate and you know you have good relationships with the AMC's and with Walmart and whatever you can build build a successful business but a lot of people don't. Uh, feel like they really know what works now and they don't know where their business is going to be in just a year or two. So I would say the level of fear is higher than it's been in, in anybody's memory. Yeah. We didn't even talk about the sort of the disappearance of the whole DVD business. Yeah. You know, and I remember like the Jeffrey Katzenbergs of the world making kind of regular pilgrimages to Bentonville, Arkansas. To, like, Absolutely. Talk. Yeah. Absolutely. And that, 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 the uh, decline of DVD sales rapidly changed, you know, dramatically changed the business. DVDs were so, sales were so profitable and so plentiful, it was pretty hard to lose money on a movie back around, say, 2005. Um, and now, of course, it's really hard to make money on a movie because there's really, there's, if a movie is, is a failure, people don't want to see it, there's no cushion anymore. Great. Thanks. Uh, I've been talking to Ben Fritz, a reporter with the Wall Street Journal. He's author of The Big Picture, The Fight for the Future of Movies, which is available now on Amazon. I uh, recommend you pick it up. Um, ben is also a great follow on Twitter. He's at Ben Fritz. If you're interested in the media uh, and what's going on in any of these topics covered today, um, he tweets about them regularly. Thanks again for taking the time, Ben. Uh, thank you, Eric. I really enjoyed it. It was interesting. Okay. And we will talk to you next time on the Eric Jackson podcast. Mm -hmm.